we got a little carried away and I had to record this conversation in two parts. So just note that there will be a bit of an audio change about halfway through, but there will be great information. We hope that you continue to enjoy it. Today's episode is part one of a two-part special where Kelly and I will be scratching the surface of what makes the birthing field in the United States so deeply flawed. Between baby showers, nursery decorations, and a loving bombardment of congratulatory messages from friends and strangers alike, we tend to think of becoming a mom as a celebratory and beautiful milestone in life, which it most definitely is, but it's not all rainbows and diaper cakes. There's a veil of darkness that encompasses the process of giving birth in the United States, and it often takes place in the delivery room. The average maternal mortality rate for women in the United States is higher than any other industrialized country in the world. In other words, women who give birth here in the United States have the highest risk of death compared to any other developed country. And for women of color, that rate is three to four times higher than their white counterparts. A growing number of studies have linked the attendance of a doula to faster and easier deliveries, a reduced reliance on potentially risky medical procedures, and having a more positive postpartum recovery process. So much so that some states have implemented doulas into their Medicaid coverage. Today's guest is Emily Barney, who is a doula, and we'll be talking with her about the unique role that doulas play in modern-day maternal health care. Emily was actually my doula, and I was her first birth client. It was such a beautiful experience, and I am so stoked we have her on today. I am also excited because while she was not my personal doula, I so appreciated her during Kara's birth and helping bring my non-blood niece, little baby Kaya, into this world. So let's tune in. Emily Barney has been naturally curious since childhood. Always up for chatting with new people, she found herself excelling in the hospitality industry. After working in restaurants for almost a decade and honing her skills to listen between the lines and move fluidly through any situation to find calm in the chaos, Emily decided to pivot to a new career that would allow her to use her skill set more intentionally. In less than one year after hearing the word doula for the first time, she completed her birth and postpartum doula training with Natural Resources, which is a female-founded community center in San Francisco. She now lives and works in the Reno Tahoe area as a birth and postpartum doula newborn care educator, and sits on the doula advisory committee for the State of Nevada Board of Certification. Her philosophy as a doula is centered around informed choices, compassionate care, and meeting each person where they are without judgment. Welcome, Em. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and to be talking with you guys today. We are so excited to have you here today. We kind of talked to Emily saying she needs to just create her own podcast on this because she's such a wealth of information. Can we just start with you telling us exactly what a doula is and what a doula is not? Absolutely. By definition, birth and postpartum doulas are trained professionals who play a non-medical role on a birth team, support families through emotional aspects of labor, birth, and postpartum, while during labor providing hands-on techniques for coping with pain and preparing families with educational resources throughout their pregnancies and into postpartum. It's also important, I think, to mention that there are several other types of doulas, not just in the birth space, and they support folks navigating other realms like conception, fertility, abortion, and loss. Those are called full-spectrum doulas. And then there's also LGBTQAI plus doulas who provide support around gender transitions, 
trans and queer birthing families and indigenous clients seeking medical resources specific to their tribal cultures or nations. And finally, there are also death doulas who support families navigating end-of-life options and care. So there's there's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot. And honestly, I had no idea that there were different types of doulas, um, which is super interesting. But can you tell us what the word doula means? Yeah, doula is um, Greek in origin, and it has been translated in several different ways. The preferred translation that I like to share is woman who serves. I mean, before we were a paid profession, we were the aunties and grandmas and sisters and neighbors who would go to your home and hold your hand, you know, just generally being a pillar of support. Mm -hmm. So given that definition, uh, you can see how there are so many other forms of service that um, women traditionally, but there are dudes out there, doodlas, and shout out <laughs> to the guys who are um, in this space. So there are folks who inhabit um, the word doula and and bring their own specific flavor to it. Wow, I'm so excited to dive in. Mm-hmm. Um, doulas and midwives, not the same thing. No, Kelly, you are very correct. They are not the same thing. That's a huge misconception. So midwives, fully medical. They can handle all of your medical needs that birth entails. They can catch babies and provide you with all the medical care prenatally that you need as well as during the actual delivery. And then doulas, we are the non-medical side of a birth team. So we are working with the families to understand their fears, their wishes, their desires, um, what they really like, what they don't like so many different aspects of the emotional and spiritual realms that birth can bring up for families. So midwives, fully medical, do you, aka doulas, support those medicated or medical births at all, or does that all fall to the midwife? Great question. Doulas support births in all settings. So we support home births, unmedicated births, hospital births, cesarean births. Um, We can pretty much support you in any setting that you want to give birth in. We mostly work within the medical system in the United States, given that I think almost 95 or more percent of births um, in the U.S. are performed in a hospital. And we can be really effective in those settings, um, mostly because we are a community member in that area and we frequent those hospitals and labor and delivery units have a very specific culture to that labor and delivery floor. Not every hospital is created equal. Not every L and D floor is created equal. Not every nurse or doctor is in that case. So we know kind of what to share with the families when they say we're with this provider or this provider, or we're at this hospital, we can really help them navigate the culture and prepare them for what they need and what they want and how they can best get those needs met within the hospital that they're about to uh, give birth in. So I'm curious, would you say that doctors and any other practitioner welcomes you with open arms? I mean, they're just running up to you and they're like, yeah, you're here. (laughs) The doula's in. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I will say in some settings, yes, that is the case. Um, Awesome. They are really excited to know that a family has a doula because they know it makes their job easier. When we go into a hospital and we're working with a client and there's an intervention that's getting proposed, then we know how to share with the client 
what is going on. The Western medical model of birth has created some fear, um, just using language and the policy kind of jargon that makes it really challenging for families to know what is happening to them and can introduce trauma. We manage the energy in the room. We maintain a peaceful, calm atmosphere, and we're not going to achieve that by arguing with doctors. What we're going to do is listen to them, encourage our clients to listen to them, and ask questions. I'd be really curious to hear, Kara, if you would, what did your partner Evan think right away? What was his reaction when you mentioned bringing in a doula for your birth? So Evan's first reaction as he's standing by the door with Kaya. We, we love you, Evan. <laughs> yeah, we love you, um, was, what is a doula? And that sounds like the same thing as a midwife because I did a poor job explaining it. I was trying to say that this is a person that could be of support to me. You know, all those other things that Emily and I had discussed before. And he was like, doesn't a midwife do all of that? Why would you even, why would you need another person? And I mean, his questions were valid, but I also couldn't explain further. I just was like, just trust me. So we ended up meeting with Emily soon after, and then she really explained the difference. And you could tell that all the stigma and stereotype or whatever came to his head was put to rest. Yeah. Another piece that folks don't quite understand is that there's a lot of pressure on the partner of a birthing person to be the only support emotionally for the birthing person. Yes, a midwife or a doctor is going to be in there and taking care of all of the medical needs, but they're not there to make sure that you're drinking water, that you've gone to the bathroom, that your position is changing consistently to help baby descend through the pelvis, telling you that you're doing a great job, you know, tying your hair back. <laughs> really, like there's just so many different ways that we can support the entire unit in a birth. And I think it's really unfortunate that partners feel that they are the only support that that birthing person can, can have, because it's really not easy to remain emotionally present and attuned to the needs of your partner, the birthing person, while also managing your own emotional and physical needs. The partner needs support too. They need nurturing too. And if the birthing person is in pain or is feeling afraid, they're they're terrified. This is their person giving birth to their child. And, you know, unfortunately, men in traditional roles as fathers don't get taught about childbirth. And so it's a it's a completely mystical process to them. And doulas are trained in the anatomical patterns and processes of birth. So we know exactly what is happening when she makes that noise, usually, <laughs> when she makes that face, when to start timing contractions, when not to, what that color means of her mucus. I mean, there's so many different aspects of birth that that the partners, you know, they they don't understand and they shouldn't. They They should be there for their partner in the way that that partner needs. And they can be right there looking into each other's eyes, holding hands, and that can be exactly where that partner needs to be. And the doula can be rubbing the birthing person's back or giving acupressure or a hip squeeze. And then everybody is supported throughout, not just the person who's birthing. Yeah, I love that idea of you being this, you said it earlier, managing the energy in the room, being that third person to just sort of say, 
we don't have to freak out and in your mind say, what can I do for this team to help them better prepare? And I will argue that, I mean, you said traditionally men and men as parents aren't taught the what childbirth is like. I don't know if anyone is really taught what childbirth yeah, is like. Yes. So <laughs> you are just so important as a piece of the birthing puzzle. Um, and when I first heard of doulas, even before Kara, my westernized brain was a little skeptical. Like, do we do people really need another person in the room? Is that too much? But it sounds like doulas are not just for those quote unquote crunchy granola births. No, I mean, believe me, <laughs> granola is delicious. We all love granola. Right. Um, we love a crunchy granola birth. Love a crunchy granola birth. Um, Thank you. Every aspect of it. I mean, all the candles, all the crystals, all of the full moon rituals, like bring it on. Yes. Um, and that exists, but that is for a specific type of person who is birthing. And someone who is birthing might really want that ultra spiritual experience that is truly understanding and having someone guide them through the portal that is birth because it is, it's deeply ceremonious and, and deeply spiritual. Um, but people don't necessarily view birth that way for themselves. Everyone views it differently. And there is a doula for every one of those people. So before you hire a doula, if you are giving birth and thinking about a doula, interview several doulas because it's about a personality match. Like this is someone who's going to be in the room for a very deeply intimate experience for you and your partner, if you have one, and you want to make sure that, that you feel comfortable with them, that they're the right personality and vibe for you and your family specifically. And that can be crunchy granola, or that can be someone who has worked in a medical field and is a nurse and now just wants to support on the other side and has all the knowledge about medical jargon and language um, that can help navigate you through that too. So we run the gamut. I have such mixed emotions just because I am that, <laughs> I am that stereotype. <laughs> like the crunchy granola. I don't even, do we have crystals? Oh well, yeah, I have, I brought crystals. Okay. Sure. Of course. <laughs> of course we did. It was, it was a mood though. I mean, it was amazing. So, I mean, don't, steer away from that. If that's even an interest that pops up in your brain, I just have to throw that out there. It was lovely. Oh yeah. No, we love crystals. <laughs> Big fan. So with my personal experience with Emily, um, I know that my support with her didn't just end at birth. It wasn't like, okay, you know, we delivered, you're good to go. It continued through postpartum. And I have a feeling that this must be common for many others that utilize doulas, right? Yeah, absolutely. People don't necessarily know where the job of doula ends, which is, is fair. You know, it's like, oh, you gave birth to the baby. Okay, bye. But in reality, just because we, you know, had the baby doesn't mean that the support ends. Because I was saying it's such a huge life event, typically we we linger a little bit afterwards. You know, there was a lot of energy. And, you know, when you're energetically attuned then you know when it's time to make your exit, you know, after the baby has been born. But that that's just in the immediate, like, post-birth, you know, several hours after birth. Because we'll hang out, we'll help moms initiate breastfeeding if they need to. We'll just stick around until everyone's in a good space, everyone's in a good spot, everyone can rest, people are hydrated and fed. 
photos are sent, you know, whatever needs to be done for those last hours. We make sure that everyone's in a good space before we leave. And then we check in with our clients in the immediate postpartum, usually within the first week. We check in with them on their emotional states and how they're recovering physically, how they're recovering emotionally. Um, If there was challenges within the birth, we offer space. We hold space for them to just share their experience and to know that they're sharing with someone who is there, present in the room with them, and that they feel they can bounce that experience off of and and have it reflected back to them. And Kara, you can attest to this. Often when you are giving birth, your memory and your brain are not logical. You are in your animal brain. And for those unmedicated labors where you don't have pain medication, your body is truly just working and you are just in it. You're in another world. You are outside of your physical body and often your memory goes. So it's really helpful to have your doula come immediately postpartum in that first week. And we can help sort of replay that experience for them um, and make it more real. And then beyond that, like I'm getting texts and calls, you know, four to six weeks plus postpartum offering tips and resources and getting photos of baby poop. Is this the right color? And, you know, just really wanting to make sure that they're in a good space before our relationship transitions into friends or or whatever. Certainly does not end just because the baby is born. You probably never get tired of getting pictures of different baby poop colors, right? (laughs) I mean, honestly, I don't. (laughs) Because it's really, it's providing parents peace of mind. And I love to be able to provide parents peace of mind. Like, yeah, that's a great color. You're doing great. Or (laughs) no, that actually isn't the greatest color. Maybe we should see what's going on. Yeah. Add it to the list of episodes for when you make a doula podcast. All yes, about baby right. poop. You could title it, Let's Talk Shit. <gasps> Sorry. I had to throw that out there. <laughs> End this episode now. Kara, your birth was awesome from an outside standpoint. Yes. Twinkle thank in you, the eye. Um, <laughs> but... Nonetheless, you still faced so much uncertainty because it was your first child. Do you have any reflections on how Emily might have empowered you? Mm -hmm. I have so many, but, you know, I'll wrap it up just so that we can capture really the true essence of what Emily provided for me. But I feel super grateful for my experience with having Emily going into my birth because of what we talked about. Having a doula encompasses so much more than what the average person thinks. Cough, cough, Evan. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But I think about the things, um, or when I'm reflecting, I think about how if you weren't there, I wouldn't have had Oso taken care of when we were transferred to the hospital, who had been just sitting there whining for six hours while I was in labor and giving birth. Evan and Kaya also wouldn't have been able to come with me in the ambulance and transfer to the hospital with me, which I can cry just thinking about how awful that would have been. And we wouldn't have had a car seat for being discharged from the hospital. Something you wouldn't think about. We can't just call an Uber and be like, hey, I just got a baby. Like, can you drop me up at home? (laughs) Even though I live five minutes away. It's just, apparently that's illegal. I don't know. But once we got to the hospital, you were there too to help me relay my birth notes. So you weren't speaking on my behalf, but you were helping to really translate what had happened because my midwife couldn't come to the hospital. She wasn't operating within that system. And so Emily was really there as I was you know, I had postpartum hemorrhaging. And so I lost a lot of blood. I was freaking out of it. And so she gave my birth notes to the providers. She told them that we're keeping my placenta, which, you know, cue the eye rolls. (laughs) 
<laughs> she also acted as our advocate too for early release because they wanted to keep me in the hospital for 12 freaking hours. And side note too, they also wanted to admit Kaya as a patient, even though she was perfectly healthy and perfectly fine when I gave birth to her at home. Of course, when they said that, it's a medical professional and it's that white coat, I don't know if they call it syndrome or whatever that is, mm-hmm. where you're a little intimidated. You don't want to go against medical orders, even if you know what's best for you, especially in such a vulnerable state. And so she helped us tell them that, you know, we actually don't want to do that and we don't feel like we need to. And so they made me sign those really patronizing release forms that I'm going against medical advice. But again, Emily was there to reassure me that no big deal. You know, you got it, girl. You did a great job. They were just was so incredible. And there just are no words to describe what you did for us. And I really get emotional just thinking about it because I'm like literally going to start crying. It's fine. We're fine. fine. Everyone's fine. fine. Tears are good. Also on my period, bonus. (laughs) But I would love for you to expand a little more on how you can and have created a more empowering birthing experience for others too. Yeah. Thank you for saying all of that, Kara. It makes me emotional as well, especially given that you were my first birth. You know, you you believed in my uh, abilities to support you and it gave me the confidence that I needed to continue on and support and empower other families moving forward. Empowering someone looks like listening. What is it that's important to you? What do you want? What are some must-haves in this very unpredictable experience that birth is? We can help families feel like the things that they wanted before labor begins can still happen once labor has started and maybe looks very different. You know, they're being asked every step of the way, do you consent to this? Is this something that you want? Um, This is different than what we had discussed prenatally. Is that okay with you? And allowing everybody to have a voice because this is, this is their rite of passage. This is their step into parenthood that they're going to remember. And if it's something where they felt like they were powerful and strong and important and heard, that makes all the difference stepping into a space of parenthood where you don't know what's going to happen. And to know that you brought your baby into this world from a space of strength can really give families that extra push that they need to get through postpartum in a more supportive way and be prepared to take on the challenges that parenthood entails. I really love what you said there. And I think it's so important to highlight for our listeners that as a doula, your professional focus is on the emotional well-being of the birthing person. I think this is the perfect transition into our next topic, which is a little less light, but it is very real the potential traumas of childbirth. And before we really dive into this, I just want to give a quick note to our listeners that the subject matter we'll be discussing involves talk of the physical and psychological experiences of trauma around childbirth and postpartum. And this may be triggering for folks who are currently pregnant, so either cut out during this segment or listen mindfully. Can you tell us, Em, a little bit more about why so many birthing people experience trauma and what it could look like? It's interesting because as a society, I don't think that we understand the way that trauma comes into our everyday lives and our everyday experiences in just small moments. And that's really similar to what it is like for folks who are giving birth. I took a trauma-informed systems training from Chandra Ippen, who's an incredible child parent psychotherapist and deep 
in the world of trauma. And she defines trauma as an exceptional experience that overwhelms us and is dangerous, and we have insufficient resources to cope. And if you think about that in the context of birth, there are so many opportunities for someone to feel overwhelmed and and dangerous, truly. They're in a very vulnerable state physically, mentally. They are being told what to do often, that what is the best for themselves or best for their baby based on someone else's thoughts and opinions. However, that that doesn't necessarily make someone feel more comfortable when they're told what to do. I think it's quite the opposite, actually. I hear many stories of folks in labor who experience trauma in the form of like not having the opportunity to give informed consent about something happening to their body. Um, this often can be like a vaginal exam and the use of vaginal exams in uh, obstetrics. There's not always the opportunity to, I mean, there's always the opportunity. There's not always the follow through of asking and being sure that that is exactly what the mom or the birthing person is saying yes to. So that's, that's one thing that can be a trigger for folks is having really sensitive parts of their bodies touched and exposed and without having sufficient ways to communicate because you're typically not in a space of logical communication that you would be in a regular conversation where you could provide that consent. There's a lot that you're dealing with and there's not always waiting for that enthusiastic yes. In a traditional hospital setting, there's policy and there is business that is being conducted. Our healthcare system is a business. And just because you're giving birth doesn't mean that that stops for them. And they operate at a certain pace. And not every person who is birthing operates at that pace. And so it often leaves the birthing families in the middle. Um, so there's one thing that really stands out to me with what you're saying is how you mentioned that this is a business. That's what it really comes down to. And there are different metrics and things that the practitioners have to meet. And so the system in itself doesn't really create the space for people to take their time and to listen to their bodies and to show up with compassion because it's on to the next one. All right, this birth is happening on to the next one, which sounds like the conclusion there is a lot of trauma happening. Yeah, that's such a good point, Kara, because it's not like the fault of a nurse or the fault of a doctor. It's it's easy to place blame on them, but that doesn't help anybody because we're all on the same team. Like they really are trying to help. They're trying to help in the way that they know how to help in the culture, in the system in which they work. And being alone in that space, being isolated while you're giving birth, while you're in this incredibly intense emotional, psychological, physical experience, that's traumatizing in and of itself, not to mention everything on top of that feeling overwhelming. So using Chandra's definition, it's very easy to find areas in the birth space where you feel overwhelmed, where there is an inherent or perceived danger, and you don't have the sufficient resources to cope. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that does look different for every person. Those are just a couple examples. And again, this is really encompassing the trauma that takes place in this one event, which is obviously very significant. But then we transition to postpartum. And so whether this trauma was addressed or it wasn't, now you're in this period of having a baby and trying to navigate this new stage of being a mom and also taking care of yourself and the mental, physical, spiritual, emotional challenges that happen at this time. 
So can you tell us a little bit about why preparing for the postpartum period is so important and what the impact is of not having a doula or any type of community to help you navigate through this time? It's such an important question, Kara. It really is the pinnacle because as you've experienced postpartum, that's the work. You are raising a human now. And birth is, of course, undoubtedly an important part to plan for and to understand your rights within and to prepare for in the way that you want to prepare. However, it is still one singular event. And postpartum is the rest of your child's life. It is the rest of your life as a parent. And this is the initiation. Mm -hmm. This is the transition into that life. Geez, no pressure. (laughs) I mean, pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Pressure. Like, it's, I think it's really easy to like, yeah, let's bring a kid. It's going to be so fun. Like, we love kids and it'll be so great. Like, I babysat my niece one time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I babysat (laughs) once. I babysat once. And I don't want to scare people away from having children. Like, please have children. If you are in a state of like, we can prepare for this. We can put the the pillars of support in place for us to know that this is going to be hard. The realities of postpartum are very hard. And I'm speaking about postpartum and really referring to the first like three months, 12 weeks essentially of, of child's life, because that's when it, the intensity can be at its peak. So I want to just say that that's extremely variable and it's important for every family to know what their postpartum period looks like. There's some literature that says six weeks, but some families say up to a year. So that definition very much changes. But to go back to your original question, Kara, I think, especially in, in terms of trauma, if you had a challenging birth and you don't have support on the other side of that, and then you are attempting to navigate a space that's already overwhelming and challenging, and you don't have sufficient resources to cope, then you are now compounding a trauma that it, that you experienced in birth into the postpartum period. And there, if you don't have access to mental health resources, mental health is just not something that you have talked about. You thought that you would be fine because you have never had any mental health uh, challenges in the past. And then maybe your partner goes back to work a little early and you don't have some folks that are able to like come over and bring you a meal and you have to every day, three times a day, while also being the food source for your child if you're breastfeeding. And even if you're not breastfeeding, you're still preparing formula and bottles, which is arguably much harder because now you have a system that you are having to create the food to put inside and then do it and then wash it and clean it and then do it again every two to three hours. So no matter how you feed, very hard on top of that. And so you just don't get that time as a parent and I'm talking about birthing parent and non-birthing parent, to to really sit down and reflect your birthing experience and to work out if there was any traumatic experiences and be able to process them with someone like a doula. Yeah. When it was my first weeks of postpartum, I think what was helpful was working with you and planning that in advance because I was able to do meal prepping. I was able to plan out different family members coming throughout the weeks of postpartum. So having those two weeks of just Evan and I figuring it out and then my mom and my sisters and all of that. So then I always knew that someone was going to be here to be extra hands. And then also ensuring that I had time off of work and that I had saved enough money to afford this period, which is its own challenge in itself. Yeah. That's an incredible privilege Mm -hmm. to have, to have time off of work. And we don't, our society, our culture doesn't 
really value that space. We don't have a really strong social safety net like they do in other countries that provide, you know, up to a year of paid leave for both parents, paternal and maternal. And when that is not available and mom has to go back to work after four weeks or six weeks even, you know, that's incredibly challenging. So support and childcare and all those things are incredibly necessary and in sometimes, you know, life-saving. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic about it, but it really, it can get to that point. You know, we're talking about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and things developing. It was traditionally postpartum depression, and now it encompasses anxiety as well as depression. So that's also something to look out for in this period while everybody is adjusting and integrating baby into their lives. From an outside perspective, it it just seems like there's so much pressure, uh, especially on the mother, to be this perfect caretaker, to be totally in love with their child right away, knowing what to do while also keeping up with life as it was pre-baby. And I just, I don't know how it got to this point because it seems impossible. It just seems like these expectations feel like a recipe for unavoidable feelings of guilt and shame for not doing enough, not being enough, and not being good enough to be a mother of a child um, from the outside looking in. Yes. So, so many, so many thoughts around that, Kelly. I'm glad that you bring it up in that way, too, because traditionally it is the mom who takes on this role of caretaker. And as women in a patriarchal society, we are often thought of as these magical creatures who just wake up knowing exactly how to take care of children. And we have this innate wisdom for all things home and family. And we have the societal expectations promoted by a nuclear family structure in the United States where the mother is supposed to have all of these things. And it's reinforced over and over again. It's this ingrained idea, this ingrained notion that women should be happy to provide care at any given moment, to drop themselves and to go and be whatever they need to be for their baby, for their partner, for their community, for everybody except themselves. And the reality is that you're not supposed to know. It's supposed to be a little chaotic until you kind of get everything dialed in to your system, to your routine, to your pace. You know, you you get those pillars of support early on. Like you were saying, Kara, having your family in town two weeks. Okay, I've got meals covered there. Mom is going to do the dishes. She can do the laundry. Then I can just be with baby. The idea of a postpartum doula is helping parents have bonding time with their babies. And you don't need a, a doula for that. You can. It's great. But if you have family members who are able to come by and will just help around the house, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's so helpful. And even those small interjections of help and support in those early weeks can lead to just more understanding and empathy around the birthing person and partner's experience. And, you know, I've mentioned it before, the perinatal mood and anxiety disorders are incredibly common. And these mood disorders can occur in any person, even the non-birthing parent. So having proper mental health resources and preparing ahead of time for your postpartum to be challenging is, I mean, I can't stress it enough how valuable that time is. Yeah. And again, I totally agree with everything you're saying too. And when I went into it and I prepared, I was kind of thinking that, you know, I have everything good. I have family coming in. I feel, I feel pretty good going into postpartum. 
I doubt that I'm going to experience any kind of perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. And I was never diagnosed with one, but I definitely know that I experience major anxiety on and off, honestly, up until now. Like I just now am seeking therapy, which was probably needed much sooner. Congrats. But um, finding the time. <laughs> Thank you. Better late than Thank never. You. Exactly. Eight months out. That's all it took. But when I first came home from the hospital, we finally got some rest and I woke up. I remember those feelings of bliss for the first few days. I mean, I was on a high. Like, I felt high. I wasn't high. You also, <laughs> you, you also gave birth unmedicated. And yeah. that the amount of endorphins in your body is actually an oxytocin is truly, you are high. Yeah. You are very high. It was great. Yeah. And you know, we were functioning off of zero sleep <laughs> and I was like, I'm good. Like I got this. I'm getting things done. I just felt really good and confident. And then cue the not latching properly when I'm trying to breastfeed Kaya and my nipples are sore and I'm feeling like a failure because my baby is not breastfeeding like she should be or how it should be looking. And then cue the sleep deprivation. It finally caught up after a week and it just came out of nowhere. I remember venting to Emily that I just was so tired. I don't know where it came from. I just don't understand how I'm supposed to get more sleep. And she actually helped Evan and I to navigate how to do sleep shifts so that we can at least get a solid chunk and I'm not dying over here. Because you just are going to lose your mind. Sign me up. Yeah, right? Have a kid. Like It's fun. <laughs> it is really fun. I also want to kind of reflect just on I mean, we were kind of joking, Kara, about you getting therapy and like, you know, only eight months later, haha. But I think it kind of speaks to that. Like, you really took those first months to get a hold on what was happening in your life and kind of that societal expectation of like, be the best, be the best, do this thing. And as much as you can sort of black that out, it still kind of infiltrates into your life. And just now you're finding the time to take care of yourself in this really important way with your mental health, even though you didn't necessarily have a diagnosis. So I think I think it's great that you're finding the help you need now. Yeah. I I feel like I just need to clarify and this we can cut this part out, but like I appreciate you saying this, Kel, and you actually know of all people that I sought out a therapist early on and whether she meant it or not, she really discredited how I was feeling because when I would go to appointments, I only had two appointments, but the second one I went to, um, I was like, oh, I'm feeling good today. And I had told her in the first introduction, orientation one, that I had bouts of anger and anxiety and all these things. But because I was feeling good at that second appointment, she was like, oh, you probably don't have anything. Wow. So from that moment, I know, and this makes me want to cry, but like, I was like, oh, I could okay, then there's nothing wrong with me. And so I didn't seek out anyone for months. So I don't want people to think that like, I didn't just do anything I tried, but like, if that happens to you, keep trying. Yes, keep trying. Find someone who validates your experience and does not dismiss it. I'm so sorry that you experienced that, Kara. Just because it's a mental health professional doesn't mean that they're all created equal. And just as a doula relationship with a client is so valuable to be like feeling heard and feeling held by a person, it should be that way uh, tenfold with a mental health professional who you're dealing with a new mom, like validate, listen and validate, normalize, normalize not having it all together, normalize being a fucking mess because you're allowed to be. 
you're allowed to be. This conversation has been so loaded in so many ways, and it just breaks my heart and also kind of lights a fire in my soul of what can I do as someone who has not been pregnant, has not experienced birthing? How can we better the system? How can I best support people who are experiencing pregnancy and parenting? Thank you for asking that, Kelly. It's, first of all, just having the curiosity to recognize that you have a part to play in the system is huge. The first thing that I would say, do not give unsolicited advice to parents. Stop. It needs to stop all of the unsolicited advice in pregnancy, in postpartum, in birth, in all of it. Like, this is their journey. So just stop giving unsolicited advice. I'm going to put on a t-shirt. I'll buy that. (laughs) Yeah, Kara, I know that you dealt with um, quite a bit of unsolicited advice, and that was not really... Yeah, not fun at all. Um, And I, you know, I wish I could have been there each time someone was trying to do that and just kind of I wish you were there too. Are you kidding? That would have saved me so much anxiety and annoyance and frustration. Stop pregnancy splaining. Stop talking to her. Just stop. Like, thank you for (laughs) your concern, but she's fine. Move along. Um, But in, in all seriousness... Emily, what are your thoughts on how someone like me can play a more active role in shifting our culture's beliefs about what pregnancy, birth, and postpartum can look like so that we're treating this process with more empathy and respect? Some of the ways that I've seen the most help be done is by just normalizing all experiences of birth in conversation, in social media, in in any setting that birth is being brought up. Like, really listen, like have that attuned ear oh, are they using certain language that is, you know, success or failure? Nothing is a failure. Normal, abnormal, those kinds of things. I think folks think that cesarean birth is a failure. Absolutely not. It's a a birth just like a vaginal birth. It just comes out of a different hole. It's still birth. It still just did an incredibly hard thing. So normalizing that is huge. Normalizing that it's not just about having a healthy baby at the end of it. Yes, we all want our babies to be healthy, of course. But that does not negate birth trauma that is experienced by a birthing person who likely had that same language used to them about, well, do you want your baby to live? Or is your baby, do you want your baby to be healthy? You have to do this thing now if you want your baby to be healthy. And they're like, oh my gosh, well, of course I want my baby to be healthy. So I'm going to, just like any mother does, put myself out of the conversation for the sake of the child and then trauma. So really like accepting that if your friend or someone is sharing that they had a really hard time in their birth, like really listen. Um, Another one to normalize is loss. And that's a huge part of where folks are coming from when they actually start pregnancy. Um, Loss and miscarriage is incredibly common. There's statistics out there, like one in four, it's incredibly common for a miscarriage or a loss to happen. Um, multiple losses to happen so before someone actually gets pregnant. So please be mindful when you're discussing the topic of pregnancy in an unfamiliar setting. So really just being mindful of the language uh, there that you're dealing with. Really the biggest one, I think, is normalizing all these experiences because birth shouldn't look any one way. And we've gotten into a space of creating standards for how people, quote, should birth. And in the U.S. culture, it's normal, again, quote, to birth in a hospital. 
So that's seen as the standard. Yeah. So folks like Kara who are choosing to go outside of the standard system, they're being looked at as like, are you crazy? Have you done your research? Do you want your baby to die? And it's, <laughs> whoa, actually, no. How about you ask them what inspired them to make that choice? What are they looking, what are they looking forward to about their birth experience? celebrate their choice with them, uh-huh. make them feel empowered. Again, listen to their why and support their why. And then if they ask for resources, share resources if you've got them. I feel like what really ties everything into this too is, first of all, stop. And it's not even to be rude, but it's like stop and pause for a second before you respond. And just mm-hmm. be mindful when you're in these situations because I got so much shit for wanting a home birth, as Emily was kind of alluding to there. And I had to explain myself over and over to the point where I was like, why am I explaining myself? I'll just share this with people that deserve to hear it. And we'll have a normal conversation about it and won't ask me if I have done the research and all those things that Emily was saying, because that was so common. Why are we doing that to moms? Like that's where the mom guilt and shame really starts right there too. Stop questioning us. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. No more shame. No more shame. No more shame. shame. Yeah, no, it's so true. One thing I also wanted to just mention here is that, you know, a lot of this mom shame and mom guilt, unfortunately, the majority of the perpetrators are other mothers. And that's a really hard space because it's really just internalized sexism and a symptom of the patriarchal ideals that the medical model of birth and our society in general are built upon. So remembering that for the majority of modern history, women were considered property. And that makes it completely appropriate to touch their bellies, to tell them what to eat, what to do for the sake of the baby, because the baby is also then property of the community and then property of the father and property of this, you know, this society. And so Kara is such a beautiful way to say that and succinctly just stop and think before you're going to share something or ask a question. Where is that coming from? Where is that response actually coming from in you? You know, we internalize a lot in our society and we internalize a lot about birth. We internalize a lot about parenthood. We all have parents. We take in our own experiences of childhood and parenthood and we project them out into the world. So be aware of your projections that are coming through. Beautiful. And that's just great advice overall, just generally speaking. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm sure that so many people listening are going to take a moment to reflect after listening to this and say, wow, I've done A, B, and C in the past. How can I move forward and be better, be more supportive to the people in my life who are experiencing this beautiful but extremely nuanced and just challenging moment in life? So this... My head is totally spinning from this whole conversation. There's been a lot of information. Um... And it's, it's just been such a beautiful conversation. And Emily, you are such a delight. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We hope that we can have you back in the future to maybe dive in a little bit more. Per usual, to our listeners, check the show notes. We're going to have more information for you there, some more resources for you to do your own research before you go uh, pregnancy shaming and splaining. Yes. And including Emily's information too. We so appreciate you. Endless amounts of gratitude to you. And same for you. Thank you so much for having the platform to have this conversation and for your curiosity in this space. Thank you. Thank you. This was fantastic. Thanks, Em. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Tuning In From Within on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Once again, my name is Kara Solomsas. And I am Kelly Hurt, and our fabulous producer is Jernai Aniwar. A special thanks to BioIntegrative Health Center International. They are a leader in the integrative and homeopathic medical services in the Reno, Tahoe, Northern Nevada area, and they have helped support this podcast, so check them out. Thanks for tuning in. Tuning Tuning out out for now. now.